0: Bolt your windows and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute three begins with the last credit of the main title sequence. The jack-o'-lantern blinks out may we get it, directed by John Carpenter. Carpenter's previous features were assault on Precinct 13 in 1976 and Dark Star in 1974. Dark Star began as his final film project at USC, The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, a student film for which Carpenter and Nick Castle both have story credits, won the Oscar for short subject live action in 1971. he had also just filmed a TV movie called Someone's Watching Me before Halloween began production. But it wouldn't air until November. Mustafa cod worried about the four-week schedule. It was filmed in just 21 days, but he told uh, Fangoria two things made me decide. One, Carpenter told me the story verbally and in a suspenseful way, almost frame for frame. Second, he told me he didn't want to take any fees, and that showed he had confidence in the project. From a budget of around 300,000, give or take, the film went on to gross 47 million at the U.S. box office. For a while, it was one of the most successful independent films of all time. Makes it still one of the most successful. Uh, Carpenter was only paid $10,000 for directing, writing, and composing the score. But he retained rights to 10% of the profits, he recalls. Not sure the original source here. After it took off, I did see some of it, though. I can't remember exactly how much money I made off the film. I do remember getting one check for over a million dollars. That wasn't bad. The film opened October 25th, 1978, at a lone theater in Kansas City. It broke records, went to three drive-ins outside Chicago. Murray Leder in his Halloween Devil's Advocate series book says the Chicago run had a bad deal, 90-10 for Compass, but mild weather ensured success and also led to positive reviews from Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Then the film went into wider release. As for Carpenter's style of directing, I like this description from uh, Carol Clover that she gives to all film directors in her essay Her Body Himself. Quote, Like the purveyors of folklore, the makers of film operate more on instinct and formula than conscious understanding. End quote. We fade out. We fade in. Superimpose Haddonfield, Illinois. Haddonfield, of course, took its name from Deborah Hill's hometown in New Jersey. South Pasadena and Hollywood stood in for the Illinois town, and fake fall leaves were used and reused in scenes to make it look more like a traditional autumn. Deborah Hill tells Fangori that the inspiration for the film came from Samhain not mentioned on screen until a sequel, and there mispronounced as Sam Hain, though it is mentioned in the first sentence of the novelization, but we'll get to that later. Deborah Hill, Fangoria: quote, The idea was that you couldn't kill evil, and that was how we came about the story. We went back to the old idea of Samhain, that Halloween was the night where all the souls are let out to wreak havoc on the living, and then came up with the story about the most evil kid who ever lived. Emma John came up with this fable of a town with a dark secret of someone who once lived there, and now that evil has come back, that's what made Halloween work. End quote. Music cuts, and a chant begins. Children's voices, black cats and goblins and broomsticks and ghosts, covens of witches and all of their hosts. Then we get the title card. But before we get to that, it's worth talking about the prologue from the novelization. The novelization, usually reported as being written by Dennis Etchison under the pseudonym, Etchison would also write under a different pseudonym, the novelizations of Halloween 2 and 3, but I've also read that the writer on this one was actually literary agent Richard Curtis, making the pseudonym, Curtis Richards, a little lame. Anyway, the prologue, in short, a young Celtic boy called Enda is in love with the king's daughter, but she, one, rejects him, and then two, is betrothed to another, so on the eve of Samhain, Enda kills her, and her betrothed, Enda, is in turn executed and cursed. Quote, Thy soul shall roam the earth till the end of time, says the tribal shaman, reliving thy foul deed and thy foul punishment, and may the god Mukola visit every affliction upon thy spirit forever. The movie doesn't need this, but it may occasionally be interesting to come back to it, and especially to return to details from the novelization by Curtis Richards. Following night, 1963. A Thursday night, which makes Judy's need for Danny to call her tomorrow when they should just see each other at school, seem a little strange. But this film would have that problem even more in 1978. This is also less than a month before the assassination of President Kennedy from the novelization. Quote, in less than a month, the president would be murdered in Dallas, signaling an era of tremendous violence and heartbreak that would reach deeply into the homes and hearts of Americans across the land. Author Don DeLillo once referred to the assassination of President Kennedy in his book Libra, as, quote, the seven seconds that broke the back of the American century, end quote. We like to think of the time before Kennedy's death as innocent, an ongoing nostalgia for America from the 1950s, before the counterculture, before Vietnam, before violence on campuses and in the streets, before the death of Judith Myers. Murray Leader makes the connection as well. He writes, quote, loss of innocence is closely allied with the mythical end of American innocence, end quote. Of course, He also quotes author James Elroy from his book, American Tabloid, saying, quote, America was never innocent. He popped our cherry on the boat over and looked back with no regrets, end quote. Vietnam was not something new, though the amount of TV coverage was. It wasn't that America was innocent. It was slavery and the trail of tears. We'd had our share of wars, years of oppression and murder, but we could pretend we were. Now, on the nightly news, we faced real violence abroad and at home. Anyway. The chant continues. You may think they scare me, you're probably right. Black cats and goblins on Halloween night. Trick or treat. Second 22, we get a cowbell. Dissolve to. Actually, we, the credit in the, uh, script is dissolved too. We actually get sort of a wipe edit as the camera comes from behind a tree across the street from the Myers house. In Halloween canon, the Myers house is 45 Lankin Lane. However, you can see the actual house number in several shots in the film. The filming location was 707 Meridian Avenue in South Pasadena, California. The house has since been refurbished and moved across the street and half a block down. Now it is 1000 Mission Street. Put that address in your Google Earth and you'll get a nice visual surprise. 1000 Mission Street, South Pasadena. We will talk more about the house and about what happened to it in minute 14. There's no music, only silence. In seconds 25 to 29, we hear an owl. From the script, it is night. We move toward the rear of the house. Actually, it's the front of the house. Someone's POV. camera moves up to a jack-o'-lantern, glowing brightly on a windowsill. Actually, it's on a porch. It is a windy night, and the curtains around the jack-o'-lantern ruffle back and forth. Yeah, so none of that really got into the film. But they couldn't control the weather. But notably, this is uh, Director of Photography Dean Cundey making use of Panaclide. The actual camera operator was Ray Stella, and we get the eye camera. Carol Clover, in her seminal work, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, expanded from her essay, Her Body Himself, Gender in the Slasher Film, makes a note of the eye cameras used in slasher films to represent the killer's POV. In Peeping Tom 1960, the killer's weapon is actually a sharpened leg of his camera's tripod, and he films his killings. This camera is his weapon. Here, the camera is the killer. Or is us. We become complicit in the slasher film's murders, or so detractors, might say. Kaya Silverman writes in Masochism and Subjectivity, I will hazard the generalization that it is always the victim, the figure who occupies the passive positions, who is really the focus of the attention, and whose subjugation the subject, whether male or female, experiences as a pleasurable repetition of his slash her own story. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that the fascination of the sadistic point of view is merely that it provides the best vantage point from which to watch the masochistic story unfold. Counter this, perhaps, with Janet Maslin and her essay, Bloodbaths, Debase Movies and Audiences. She writes, At no time in horror movie history has the violence been as literal as it is today, writing in 1982, or as numbing. The metaphorical aspects of an old fashioned monster, mad scientist, or vampire film have no counterpart in the fifteen dead babysitters format. I would interrupt because I don't know of a film that has that many babysitters dying in a silly nitpick. In fact, the lower body count I would hazard a guess without a specific study, the better staying power the film has. But Maslin continues. Quote, There is no opportunity to view the monster as the embodiment of the community's fears, or as the darker side of man's nature, or as anything other than a cryptic, single-minded creep. Clearly, she has never seen the original Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, in which Freddy is very much an embodiment of the community's guilt and shame, or the original Friday the 13th in which Jason Voorhees died because camp counselors neglected their duties, and... Halloween, with its focus on babysitters, invokes a sense of young people growing up, trying out, if not entering, adulthood. Laurie Strode, Linda Vanderclock, Annie Brackett, Bob Sims, they are venturing into a world without adult supervision, and aside from Laurie, they go unprepared. This is very much the metaphorical element, and one could find many more, that Maslin suggests is missing. But Maslin continues, quote, there's no time to identify with the characters since they are killed off so quickly that they don't have time to impress themselves upon an audience. There isn't even much use of the towering inferno morality, whereby the adulterers sneaking off to a different floor from everyone else at the party are the first characters to fry in a movie like The Burning. She's not writing about Halloween or about Friday the thirteenth, about an in Elm Street, the original no anime. Which is an interesting perspective in 1982, before so many slasher films had come and gone, and the notion that they are very much about those who sin being the ones who would die seems a given later. She says, quote, The arbitrary murders have nothing to do with morality. There is no notion of sin here, and hence no possibility of redemption. End quote. Which is fine, I suppose. Then she hits on something. Quote, What's left? spectacle of pure killing, isolated from the context of everyday life. Campers, stewardesses, or sorority girls, with no distinguishing characteristics, are slaughtered one after another. She goes on about the killer and the victims, but that's enough for that. This is film. We are talking about a pure spectacle of killing or what have you is often very much the point. But anyway, this opening sequence was the... Let's get back to the movie. The last one shot... For the film. The entire cast and crew whitewashed the outside of the house and dressed the inside and outside. On that day, from the script, suddenly we hear voices from inside the house. Uh, sister says, my parents won't be home until 10. Boyfriend, are you sure? Then laughter. The POV moves from the jack-o'-lantern down to another window and peers inside. Uh, in the script, Judith is listed as 18. Sister, in the script, is Judith, Judy, Margaret Myers, born 10 November 1947, making the character just shy of her 16th birthday. She's a sophomore at Haddonfield High School. She is portrayed by Sandy Johnson, who was 24 at the time of filming. Johnson's credits prior to Halloween include Jokes My Folks Never Told Me, which came out in May, and is described on IMDb as an anthology film consisting of dirty sex joke turned into short, comical, and often erotic sketches. And Surfer Girls, the tagline for which was they go all the way with the games they play, which came out in April. Boyfriend is Daniel Danny Hodges, portrayed here by David Kyle, age 26 at the time of filming. His prior credits: Murder in Peyton Place, a 1977 TV movie, and Cat Merkle and the Silks in 1976. What I like here is that with the limited set dressing the crew has put into this house, they managed to have an echo of the setup in the Wallace room later which may be delivered here. The couch is on the inside wall, and the Wallace living room, the couch is against the exterior wall. Both at angles to the room, probably just for practical reasons in terms of cinematic framing, but still, it's weird to have your couch at an angle and leave that blank space in the corner. But also, above the couch hang two frames, each with four images, presumably photos. But these are not square frames. They are hung at an angle to be more visually interesting, or they are diamond-shaped frames with diamond-shaped openings. The blurry shapes in the images suggest they were hung at an angle. Shapes are at the same angle. Either way, if these contain images of the Myers family, they are perhaps poetically crooked. Boyfriend, we are alone, aren't we? And the minute ends. But I have one more thing for you. The horror started on the eve of Samhain, in a foggy vale on Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic Grace. When once started, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, and with incredible ferocity. Then... Its lust sated. It shrank back into the mists of time for a year, a decade, a generation perhaps. But it slept only and did not die, for it could not be killed. And on the eve before Samhain it would stir, and if the lust were powerful enough, it would rise to fulfill the curse invoked so many Samhains before. Then the people would bolt their doors. Scant good it did them, for the thing laughed at locks and bolts, and besides, there were the unwary, always the unwary. Samhain, the druid festival of the dead. The summer had passed, and so too had that outburst of early fall warmth now known as Indian summer. The green had gone out of the land, the crops harvested, and the chill of winter descended like an angel of death. The people, fearing the sun might never again warm the land, held their festival to appease Mukwala, their deity. On hillsides and in the caves and daub and wattle huts, great fires were lit, to which the spirits of the departed were invited by their kinsmen to warm themselves, to be cheerful, before the snows blanketed the earth. Druid priests divined who would live and die in the coming year, who would marry, bear children, wax rich, enjoy good health. And they attempted to hold at bay through sacrifices and other rites to witches and goblins that ran amuck at the time, stealing infants, destroying crops, killing farm animals, and sometimes worse. Deirdre was the third and youngest daughter of the Druid king, Gwynwil. Her hair was sandy brown with amber highlights, her eyes sea green, her complexion cream and wild rose. She was already taller than her older sisters, and her early development had been the cause of much concern in the tribal community. The other virgins tittered with envy, the married women voiced disapproval and counseled her mother to marry her off before the girl yielded to her budding impulses. The young warriors eyed her yearningly, and the old warriors thought forbidden thoughts and reflected on their faded memories. His name was Enda, he was fifteen, and he loved Deirdre with a secret passion that tortured him and at night caused him to cry out in his sleep. When it became rumored that Deirdre's father, the king, was preparing to offer her a hand in marriage, Enda consulted his kinsmen and asked if they thought his suit would be looked upon in favor. He suspected what the answer would be, but his longing overcame his embarrassment. Oh, did you marry you, his father cackled, with your shriveled arm and your twitching mouth? For Enda had presented himself wrong end first when his mother birthed him and the midwives had made a botch of his delivery. She would as soon marry my goat, howled his uncle. Or well, bullock, his brother added, pointing to the runty dog worrying a greasy bone in the corner of their hut. Besides, said his father, I'm told she's but betrothed to Kulain. Now there's a lad worthy of that wench's pretty hole, his uncle burst out, raising his wine skin to his fat lips, and they continued to discuss Deirdre's charms as Endo retreated miserably from the hut into the cold night. The boy suffered tortures such as only the adolescent can, at length he determined on a plan. If he could somehow get directly to Deirdre, he would convince her that though he was ill-favored physically, he was in every other respect a fitting candidate for her, her hand. This was easier said than done, however, because virgins were closely watched by their mothers or by truculent warrior brothers. Nevertheless, one day Enda seized an opportunity when Didre went to fetch water from the stream at the foot of the hill. He followed her furtively, darting from tree to tree until he found her stooped over the stream, singing softly to herself as the water filled her clay pitchers. Deirdre he called timidly. She turned and gasped, eyes round with fright. You, what do you want? Her body tensed and she seemed ready to bolt. I, I want to. The panic in her face alarmed him. He had expected to startle her, but I had not imagined she would greet him with such revulsion. He stepped forward, hand extended pacifically. But she jumped back, misinterpreting the gesture. She stumbled, almost falling into the stream. Enda moved swiftly to rescue her. No, she shrieked. Get away from me, monster. She found her feet and burst into a run, crying, Help, help, he means to rape me. Enda's body had been deformed at birth, but not until that moment had his soul been formed. And now it was Salon, And Enda, humiliated beyond reason, stood on the perimeter of the celebrants dancing and chanting around the bonfire. In his left hand he held a fat wineskin from which he drank often. In his right he held a foot-long butcher blade which he used to cut the throats of pigs and chickens. His eyes were fixed bitterly on the figures of Deirdre and Culin, whirling exuberantly around the fire to the immense approval of the tribe, for their betrothal had been announced to the joy and relief of all. And his legs shook, and his body trembled in the cold night, though the heat of the fire was intense. And when the couple pirouetted past him once more, he leapt like a wildcat on his twin prey. Unarmed, their elbows linked, they didn't have a chance. Enda's blade sliced easily through Kulin's jugular and windpipe, his legs kicked out in a grotesque finale to his dance of life. Then he fell, like a slaughtered bull, dragging Deidre downward. Her head turned away, she laughed, believing that her drunken partner had merely stumbled. Enda's blade caught her with laughter on her face, the same laughter that had mocked him after she had run safely into the arms of her tribesmen the day he had approached her at the stream the highly honed weapon plunged into her breast up to the hilt. In the clamor, no one heard the explosion of wind from her lungs, the gurgle of blood, the whimper, or saw the look of dreadful recognition as the light faded from her eyes. Except for Enda. The thrill of revenge was the last emotion Enda knew. For a moment later, he was literally torn apart by the enraged tribe. Only his head and his heart were preserved. Gathered up after the frenzy had subsided at the request of the grieving king. After Deirdre and Kulain were buried on the hallowed ground the following day, and his head and heart were carried to the summit of hill of fiends, the cowards, and other outcasts were left to rot unblessed. The king asked his shaman to pronounce a special curse of the remains of this vile murderer. Thy soul shall roam the earth till the end of time, reliving thy foul deed and thy foul punishment, and may the god Rukola visit every affliction upon thy spirit forevermore. The sky darkened and lightning flashed. The day suddenly grew black and cold, and out of nowhere gusts of snow lashed the tribal party. In the history of the tribe, it had never snowed so early in the year. Satisfied that Muk'ola had heard his prayer, the shaman summoned his people to turn their backs on Enda and return to their bereft village. The celebration of Samhain's Eve was transmuted over the centuries. The invading Romans carried the tradition back from the English Isles with them in the form of the Harvest Festival of Pomona, and the early Christians deemed their celebration Halamas. The popes of the Middle Ages consecrated November 1st as All Saints' Day, and All Hallows Even slurred into Halloween as the holiday was transmuted over the next millennium. With the coming of modern civilization, the superstitions and traditions of the original festival lost their meaning and vitality. Token recognition can be seen in the customs of lighting candles and jack-o'-lanterns, hanging effigies of witches and goblins outside homes, and playing good-natured pranks that were a feeble cry from the mayhem of the old time. Children paraded about in costumes whose significance had long ago lost their correspondence to the terror of evil that had once gripped the world at the onset of winter. Halloween, like many of the holidays, had become an empty shame, except that from time to time, the innocent frolic of all Halloween was shattered by some brutal and inexplicable crime, and the original spirit of the celebration was brought home to a horrified world. Then the people would bolt their doors. Scant good it did them. And besides... There were always the unwary. That is all for Minute 3. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute, or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe, and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.